All right, if you've got your Bible, open it up to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 8 for us. As you might notice, we're going to be in this same section for the next, um, uh, till Easter. And so we'll be in, uh, we'll, we'll be reading from this same section every week because we're moving word by word through um, verses uh, 7, uh, 5, 6, and 7. But starting in verse 3, it says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for this time. God, we ask that as we come to your word um, in this this um, Lenten season, um, that you would use it in a unique way, um, that you would specially chastise our hearts, that you would specially make us um, introspective, um, not in a in a way that that causes us to um, God doubt you um, or doubt uh, the salvation that you have provided, God, but in a way that makes us um, look into our lives to see if we are living in ways um, that are faithful to you, to see if we have um, secret um, areas and pockets of sin in our lives that we have been unattentive to. God, help us to root those places out. Help us to um, shine the light of your word um, on those places so that we can, um, God, mortify that sin and find healing um, for ourselves so that we can live um, righteously um, and holy lives before you. God, we ask that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit would work so as to apply these things to our hearts, that we would read them, but not just read them uh, with, with a, a simple understanding, God, but that you would um, impress these things upon us, God, that you would conform our lives um, to the things that we see in your scripture. Um, and God, that you would do all these things um, so that we could again be the people you've called us to be. God, help us to that end. We, we love you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, some of you are, I mention him occasionally, some of you may be familiar with the, the historic personage um, from Christian history, um, the man named Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. Um, he's probably the most significant um, theologian in the history of the church past the New Testament, right? Other than Paul um, and maybe Calvin or Luther or a couple guys like that, um, he's certainly in the running, though, for, for the most significant theologian in the history of the church. And he lived around the year 400, kind of in that, that time frame, as the Roman Empire was collapsing. And But before that happened... Um, as he, as he was a young man, he was a pagan. He was involved in all kinds of goofy 
cults and, and philosophies. Um, he lived a life of, of sexual impurity and was just kind of wasting his existence. And then as the Holy Spirit started to work on him and God started to draw him close, he became convicted of his sin. And he tells us the story of his conversion in, in a book that he wrote called Confessions. And, and, it, and it basically says that one day he was in a courtyard there in his home and he was feeling the conviction for his sins. He was feeling the emptiness of his own life apart from God. And it was, and it was wrecking him, right? And he was in this courtyard tormented, soul sick, and he threw himself to the ground weeping um, and, and, and not knowing exactly what to do, knowing that he couldn't go forward in the life he had been living, but also not exactly sure what to do or where to turn. And he cried out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, how long am I going to have to deal with this? What's, what's, what's going to be the next step? And as he laid there sobbing in this courtyard, he writes these, these words and confessions. It says, as I was saying these things, And weeping in most bitter contrition of my heart, suddenly I heard a voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from a neighboring house, chanting over and over again, tole lege, tole lege, which translated is take up and read. And so immediately he took that as a sign and he stepped up and he went over to a place in in his courtyard where a copy of the scriptures lay. And he opened the scriptures up and the first passage that his eyes fell on were Romans chapter 13 verses 13 and 14. That says, let us walk properly as is as in the daytime, not in wild parties and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then Augustine writes this. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and the gloom of doubt vanished away. So this is typically seen as as Augustine's conversion point. This is the point in which the gospel changes his heart and he becomes um, a follower of Jesus. But what I want to zoom in on in his story is not so much his conversion, but that phrase that he heard, that tole lege, take up and read. Because that phrase has kind of become something like a catchphrase in in the Christian church and the Christian world. Um, And it bears particular significance to what we're talking about today in the context of adding knowledge. All right. And so um, as we talked about earlier, this is this is the season of Lent in the church calendar. It's a season of self-examination. It's a season of of um, sort of looking um, intently into our own um, spiritual lives and and seeing what God has to to show us and to reveal to us about those things. It's an opportunity to look to our sanctification to grow in Christ likeness. And you might say, well, Ash, aren't we supposed to do that all the time? And the answer is we are. But also it's not a bad thing to have special times during the year to to focus on those things. The same way you might go on a marriage retreat. The same way you might go to a discipleship conference and sort of take a weekend to 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 focus in on these things. Well we take a season of the of the Christian year and to say we are going to make special emphasis on these things in our reading, in our discipleship, in our focus, in, in what we talk about. And so so as I mentioned last week, Second Peter chapter 1 is a, is a perfect place to talk about this process of sanctification in our lives. Um, and the necessary effort on our part, the necessary diligence on our part um, that we have to exert in our sanctification. Sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit, and yet it is a 
for lack of a better way of saying it, it's a cooperative work. It's something that we don't just sit back and wait on. It's something that we pursue with our own will and our own energy. Um, and we, we seek after holiness in these things. And so what we've noticed in this passage is, is part of that necessary work that we're talking about is adding knowledge to our sanctification. All right. So the first week, last week, we talked about the idea where it said, add to your faith virtue. We talk about virtue. Then in this, this passage that, that we're looking at today, we're, we're looking at the idea of adding to our virtue now knowledge. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of talk about first about what we mean by knowledge. Like what does the scripture mean when we talk about knowledge? Then we're going to talk about some of the dangers that come along with the issue of knowledge and, and growing in knowledge in the church. And then we're going to kind of just close with some, some in truth and encouragement that we can maybe walk away and, and hold on to as an idea. Okay. So starting off, what is, what does knowledge mean? Like what are we talking about when the Bible talks about knowledge? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for knowledge is the word yada. All right. It's used over 950 times in the Old Testament. So that's a pretty significant word, right? It's a word that, 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 that is used a whole lot. And it's a whole lot more complex in the Old Testament than it is in our English language. The Hebrew word yada is a lot more complex than our word knowledge, even though that's the best word that we have to translate it. The Old Testament word knowledge um, doesn't just mean knowing things. It doesn't just mean information. It's about perceiving, learning, understanding, willfully living in light of these things, performing them, experiencing something, right? That's what it means to know something. So knowledge isn't just a possession of information. That's not what knowledge is in the Old Testament. It's an exercise of that information. It's an actualization of that information. And so biblically to know God is not just to know about him in the abstract or in an impersonal way, but it's rather to engage with God's saving acts, right? To actually be living in and about and through the truth that God has spoken to you, especially in terms of his salvation. To know God is not just to like kind of, you know, you hear people talk about, well, what are you trying to do, man? I'm trying to, trying to know God, or I'm trying to serve and seek God. I'm trying to know him, right? Um, it's not about a philosophical kind of understanding, right? It's about recognizing and accepting God for who he is and, 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 and believing the claims that he makes. Um, again, it's not a mystical kind of contemplation as much as it is a dutiful obedience to God. That's what it means to know. So, for example, I was thinking about somebody like Josh, and Josh would be somebody who I would say he knows fishing, right? He knows fishing. That's what he does for a living. He's a, he's a, a, a fishing guide or whatever. Like, I know fishing. I know about fishing. Um, I've never actually caught a fish. Um, I have thrown things in water several times. Um, there's never been anything on the other end, but... But I, I know, but I don't know fishing, right? Josh knows fishing. He has a understanding of it that goes beyond just the mechanics or the terms or things. I'm sure that the case would be is if we were on the river, he would be able to read the water in different ways, and he would be able to read the weather in different and know how that was going to affect certain places and certain fish and all these things. You would you have a intimate knowledge of these things. That's what the idea of knowledge in the Old Testament is getting at, 
right? It's not just about information. It's about almost like a living out of these truths. Um, probably some of you are aware that that word no is actually even used for the idea of sexual union in the Old Testament, right? So when you read the Hebrew, it says things like Adam knew his wife and she con- conceived a child, right? And so it's this idea of intimate knowledge of somebody, right? And intimate connectedness to somebody. And so if we know God, we are intimately connected to him. Now, when we come to the New Testament, the word gets a little more flat, you could say, right? And that makes sense because the Hebrews are talking about it in the term, in, 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 a, in, a, in terms of a, a faith that is the center of their people. But in, in the Greco-Roman world, you have lots of different people from different places and different cultures and different religions, right? So that word kind of flattens out a little bit. And so it still means this idea of, of information and, and knowledge that way. But at least when the New Testament is using it, it is at least partially reflecting on the way the Old Testament uses it. And so the idea is still there that it's not just simple intellectual apprehension of something, right? But it is a response to that knowledge, right? So to know God in the New Testament is to have faith and accept Jesus Christ and his claims, okay? Um, Basically, we could say it this way. We talk all the time about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We talk about right action and right belief, right? Well, what knowledge is in the Bible is right action and right belief in light of who Jesus is. All right. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about true knowledge. It is information, it is content, it is facts, but it isn't just any of those things. And that's important because that brings us, I think, a great segue into what the first problem with knowledge is among many Christians, right? And the first danger of knowledge and the danger of a passage like this when it says, add to your virtue knowledge, is that sometimes we treat knowledge like it is an end in itself, right? That knowing these things is an ultimate, um, the, the ultimate idea, right? Um, so I think the case is, and I know I'm, I, I lean towards being this kind of person, that on one side there are folks who are drawn to the life of the mind, right? Like they like thinking about stuff. They like um, studying. They like reading. They like words. They like discussion. They like argumentation, right? Um, that's how they engage with God's word. Some people are like that. I feel like I'm like that. But at the same time, there's a, there can be a danger to that. It's not always good because you may fall into that category of people who then begin to think that knowledge of the scriptures and knowledge of these things, intellectual facts in your head, are really what God is wanting out of your life. That that's the end of it. So I think of the fact that when we started this church... Um, we basically said there were there were five distinctives that we were going to push, right? We were going to be a church within the Baptist tradition, um, and so we weren't trying to reinvent the wheel in terms of any of those kind of things. But we did want to do some things differently, and, and here's the five things, or at least the first four. We wanted to be elder-led, which is something that is not always the case in Baptist churches. We wanted to be covenantal and confessional. Um, in, in the way we, we associated with each other. We wanted to have a gospel-centered and gospel-shaped worship, which has to do with our, our liturgy and our hymnody and things like that, right? And then the, the fourth thing was this, and it was sort of general, but, but it was something that we, when we were, in fact, many of you, when we were sort of recruiting people and saying, would you like to be a part of this? We said, we want our church to be a thoughtful,
thoughtful people, right? We want to be people who think deeply about the Word of God. We don't want to be people who keep everything kind of on a surface level and have a faith that basically only affects us between the hours of 6 and 8 on Wednesday and and 5 and 7 on Sunday, right? We want to have a faith that is engaging our mind, that is digging deeply into the Scriptures and and, and growing in in that context, all right? And so that's what we talked about that all the time. So I'm not in any way negating the importance of those things. I want us to be a thoughtful kind of people. The danger comes, however, when we think that really all God wants of us is to have big brains and crushing arguments, right? Like that's not what he is calling us to. He's not calling us to just to be the guy who goes, I can answer any question and win any fight when it comes to Christianity. That's not the goal, even though sometimes it feels like that's what's going on. We see in the scriptures, there's lots of places that warn about that exact kind of thing. First Corinthians eight, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Right? Knowledge has a tendency to puff up people, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Right? So there we have the, even that, that picture. We're talking about knowledge, and in this place it's saying bare knowledge puffs you up. But right kind of knowledge actually makes you known by God, right? You know God and God knows you. And so there is that danger, right? We don't want to be those kind of people who are essentially only people who are living in our own heads, right? And are puffed up by our knowledge. Again, I mentioned last week that I think there's a sequential flow to these characteristics. And you notice something about them, right? If it's sequential, if one is added to the next... It is significant that knowledge is at the beginning of the list, right? And that love and godliness are at the end of the list. That says something about the way our sanctification progresses. One thing it says is that you cannot get to the end without the knowledge, right? And we have lots of that in the church today, too. We have lots of people who are like, man, I just love. Man, I just love folks. Just love them. Just love. I want to be about loving folks. And you're like, well, cool. What does that mean? I don't know. I just love people, right? Well, there is a content to it. The Word tells us what love looks like. And so if you don't have that knowledge and that content, then you're missing something. But by the same token, if you have that knowledge and you stop there, then you are missing out on the whole rest of the way that God is meaning to work in your life. And so if we are people who are just living in our own heads, we've got a problem. There's a joke among ministers sometimes uh, that's a bad joke, but it's one that people say and they'll say, you know what, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people, right? Like you hear that all the time and they say it kind of like tongue in cheek or whatever. Um, That is exactly the kind of attitude that we're talking about here. It's like, man, I would love being a pastor if I could just sit around with a bunch of other people who knew about the Bible and talk about random theological things all day and debate. That'd be great. I'd love it. But then I got to deal with people. Okay. If that is your attitude, then there's a problem. Uh, your sanctification has not progressed to where Christ intends it to go. Because knowledge is the beginning. Virtue is the beginning, right? Faith is the beginning. Let's start here again. Faith is the beginning. Add to that faith virtue. Add to that virtue knowledge. All right? And so we see it in other places throughout the Scripture. If I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and yet and have all faith, even faith to remove mountains, but I have not love, then I am nothing. 
All right? and, and I don't think we can say it any, any more blatantly than that. So we'll move on to the next thing. Not only sometimes do we have a danger of thinking that, that knowledge is the end of things, but sometimes we have make the exact opposite mistake. And that is that we think knowledge, growing in knowledge and understanding, really isn't that important. And it's not for me. Um, it's not something that I need to pursue. And I want to zoom in on a particular kind of that argument in saying this. A lot of times we find that people have that attitude where they think, I don't need to grow in my understanding and knowledge of things. But they base it on their gender. All right. And let me let me explain what I mean by that. So first off, from the male perspective, okay, from a man's perspective, sometimes this discussion goes on in their heads. Right. Um, It's not uncommon, at least I think, for men to see education as somehow unmanly. Right. Um, To to have an attitude among some men who basically are like, uh, you know, thinking Knowledge is is having having a a, a heady kind of, of of belief or whatever is is unmanly. It's bookish. It's nerdy, right? Um, real men are men of action. They're not men of thought. They're men of action. They do things, right? They're people who do things with their hands, and they're not people who sit and think about things deeply. That's not what men do. There is a there's, and I I don't think that's true. Right. I think that is it is garbage um, and it is a false dichotomy of the way what it means to be uh, a man and what the scriptures have called to uh, call us to. There is a I've heard this multiple times in my life, a preaching strategy. Right. And so sometimes we will notice that as a preacher, you look out at men and sometimes men are checked out in the middle of service. Right. It's like they're preaching and they're and it's obviously they're, they're, they're checked out. And you know what happens is some, some people say this. They say, you know what you need to do? You need to get a prop. You need to have some kind of toy or some kind of thing up on stage. Because if you had a prop, a physical, tangible thing, men all of a sudden would be focused, right? They need that tangible thing. And I just want to go, gosh, I hope that's not true, okay? Maybe it is true. Maybe, like, if I'm going to preach a a message about the sword of the spirit, I need to go home and get my imitation claymore sword and have it waving around up here. That way men will pay attention. Maybe that's the case. I hope it's not, though, because I hope we can be better than that, right? I hope that the case is that men can be people who think and and, uh, look to things in terms of the, the life of the mind and don't have to have a toy in front of us. And yet we know that the case is, is that many men tend to feel that way or act that way. Um, but, but when you look at the scripture, that isn't the case, right? David, King David was a warrior, and he also wrote poetry, all right? That, a, a picture of manhood in the scriptures where you have a person who is not only a man of action and courage, but a man who is thoughtful, who is a, a man a, a, who has the life of, uh, is, is dealing with the life of the mind. Um, moreover, in the, in the case of David, a person who is, is very strong and bold in his personality, and yet at the same time very tender and emotional in his personality, right? We, we act like there is only one spectrum that manhood should look like, and I don't think that's the case. The scriptures call us all with Without caveat to grow in knowledge, right? Every single one of us should be doing that. And so if at any point you were as a man to say, man, I'm just a simple guy. I don't understand these things and I don't need to dig deeply into these things. You're wrong. The scriptures call you to that. If men are to be leaders, which they are, at least in their families, if not in the church, and the scriptures specifically tie teaching to leadership, 
then that means the only way you can be a leader is to be able to teach. And the only way you can teach is to know stuff, right? You have to have that knowledge or you cannot do fulfill the calling that God has in your life. The truth is, what's really going on is our own insecurities most of the time, right? We are scared to display our ignorance to other people. Men like to be capable, right? We like to be proficient. We like to make other people know what, think we know what we're talking about. And so we don't like putting ourselves in situations where our ignorance is put on display. And so then what we usually do is we recede from those things. If it's something that we don't know about, we say, that's dumb, uh, real men don't have to deal with those things or whatever. And the real answer is because you feel like you will look dumb in that situation. And guess what? You will feel dumb if you keep on with that attitude, right? Because we're not talking about stupidity in an issue. We're talking about ignorance. All ignorance is is not having ever learned. And you know how you fix ignorance? You start learning, right? You start taking in that knowledge and you get informed about things so that you have... Um, something to think and something to say in these situations. I'll be honest, when I've said this before, I think, when I started seminary, literally, and I, this isn't a joke, I think it's almost literal. When I started seminary, for the first year I was in seminary, I said one word in class ever, and that word was here. Okay? That was the only word I ever said when they called roll. Because when I got there, I just looked around and listened to these guys talking and listened to these guys, the knowledge of the Bible. And many of these guys had come from Bible colleges and probably come from, they were more faithful dudes than I was. They had been in the Word and been living faithfully longer and more deeply than I had. And I recognized very quickly, I looked around and I was like, man, I am... I am out of my league here. Like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. And so I just shut my mouth and didn't say anything because I was afraid that I would sound stupid. Um, But guess what? I kept on going to class and kept on listening and kept on learning. And then eventually you get to a point where you go, you know what? I think I have something to say. I think I have something to share in this context and in this community. And that's how all growth works in those things, right? So I call men, 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 do that, right? Be people who care about growing in knowledge um, and in the things of God. Ladies, you have a, a different issue, I think, sometimes, or at least often is the case. Ladies are often in danger of thinking that knowledge is not something that they are supposed to seek either because of their status in the church as as women or something like that, right? Um, biblical knowledge, being knowledgeable about the scriptures and things like that, that's men's work, right? Women are supposed to serve, they're supposed to nurture, but we're not supposed to be like Bible scholars. We're not supposed to be people who know the scriptures deeply and, can, and tell people about the scriptures, right? I hope as I say those words, they sound as dumb as as I hear them sounding, right? That that is not what the scriptures are teaching. Um, yes, there are different roles in terms of formal teaching responsibilities in the church, right? I, we don't make any apologies for that. That is biblically self-evident. But at the same time, the scriptures obviously call every single believer to be people who are growing in the knowledge um, of, of God and the knowledge of his word. We have a responsibility to do that, to be able to speak God's word and share it confidently wherever we go. With your family, with your children, with other women, um, particularly, I know as a pastor... Um, man, it is so helpful to have women who I know are biblically sound that if there's a situation in like a counseling kind of situation where I go, man, I need to have a conversation with this lady over here. But I think there would be some weird issues in terms of boundaries 
for me to talk to that person. But you know what? I, what I really need is I need a woman who can come over here and speak truth into this person's life in, in an appropriate way. But sometimes the case is, is you go, man, but I don't know who that woman would be. I'm nervous about putting somebody who doesn't have um, a, a sound biblical knowledge about things, right? And so it is necessary that women seek out and, and, and delve into God's Word and grow in the knowledge of God's Word. It's helpful to the church. It's helpful to the community. It's certainly helpful to me as a pastor. Um, we need women who are competent and confident in terms of the study of God's Word. Because you notice what's going on here. Immediately what it becomes apparent how the devil is working, right? The devil is saying to men... <laughs> Biblical knowledge isn't your job. That's ladies' work. And then he's saying to the ladies, hey, ladies, biblical knowledge isn't your job. It's, it's men's work, right? And so what ends up happening? It ends up being nobody's work, right? Nobody is, is doing this. We all, and, and studies continue to bear this out, that we are a biblically illiterate culture, right? Even within the church, most people say knowledge of the Bible is very important, even people who aren't particularly uh, religious, and yet at the same time, nobody seems to be pursuing that thing that they know to be important. All right, And we see that taking place all over the place. So, again, when we began planning this church and, 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 and looking to start it, I already told you those first four um, characteristics. The fifth characteristic was this. What we wanted to be distinct in was that we would, we, the phrase was, every member a disciple was the other idea. Every single member, a discipler. That was the idea that we didn't want there to be a professional class of, of um, teachers, right? Like there was this thing in many churches where essentially what we have done is we have farmed out um, our responsibilities to a pastor. We've said, we pay you pastor and you associate pastor and you youth pastor to do all the spiritual functions that the Bible calls us to. You're our evangelist. You're our disciplers. Um, you are our servers. You are our all these different things. We pay you to do that on our behalf. All right, which is sort of funny because that's exactly what was going on in the Catholic Church before the Reformation. That's exactly part of what the Reformation was running from, to say, we don't have priests who do all these things for us. We are the people of God, and we are all called to be a part of this. Every single one of us is called to go and make disciples of all nations, right? And we cannot do that if we are not people who know the Word of God. And so that was that, that idea that we all must be disciples and therefore we all must be learners because Christianity is a theological religion, all right? A theological faith. When I say theological, I mean theology means the study of God, right? We are people who think it is important to study and to think deeply and to dig into the mysteries of God in his word. There are lots of faiths in the world that are not theological, okay? Hinduism, by and large, is not theological. It is a sacramental faith. If you go to your ceremony three times a year and you, you lay some flowers on this statue and you eat this food on this other day, you're good to go. You don't have to think about the gods or what they want of your life or anything. You just do these little ceremonies, right? In many places, Catholicism falls into that category. That there are people who are saying, man, I don't really, I'm not really thinking about my faith in many ways. I'm just doing the things, the ceremonies that the church has told me I should do. And yet the scriptures call us all the time to be a thoughtful people, a theological people. Christianity is a thoughtful and theological faith. And so I would encourage you in this. Make time for learning. 
right? Make time in your lives, your schedules, your weekly, your daily schedules to learn from the scriptures, right? We are a culture that is addicted to entertainment. We are, the amount of time we put into entertainment compared to what most cultures have put into it is bizarre, Right. Most cultures needed sun up to sundown just to subsist. Right. They needed every hour of the day to work just so they wouldn't die that week. Right. We have gotten to the point where, man, we can pretty much do that in in six to eight hours worth of work. And then we just got all this free time and we don't know what to do with it. And we just we just play and we entertain and we do these fun things. And there's nothing wrong with entertainment at a level, but it has taken over our lives and it has certainly pushed out. Um, opportunities to learn and to grow in, in our knowledge. And so I would encourage you again, it is necessary for you to read. It is necessary for you to be a person who is certainly reading the scriptures, but reading other things as well. Reading books is a critical thing in the Christian life, man. And I, I don't know how else to say it because it's hard because I get it. I have, I wasn't always a reader. Um, for most of my life, I was not a reader. I hated reading. I wasn't interested in it, right? I liked comic books partially because most of the story was told in pictures as opposed to text, right? I didn't want to read a novel. Um, it took me a long time. I was in late college, early seminary before I really started feeling like reading was something I enjoyed. It's a skill that you nurture, right? You have to learn how to read. And I know everybody thinks, no, you just pick up a book and you read it or you don't. No, you don't. Your brain has to start figuring out new pathways and understanding how to comprehend these things and and follow them. It takes practice. But we have to do that. Think about it like this. If God has primarily revealed himself to us through a written word and you hate reading, you're going to have a problem. Right? You're going to be hamstrung in this process. All right? And I would argue we're all hamstrung in that process. Reading is something that you have to learn and nurture. All right? But however, even though it's necessary, there are other things that you can do too. Other things that you can make time for in your lives. Right? So be a listener. Right? Man, we are living in an embarrassment of riches when it comes to um, the, the audio content that is out there. Sermons and podcasts and interviews and all these different things. Right? Um, most of the history of the world, man, you'd hear one or two preachers your entire life. Now you can get online and listen to any of the greatest preachers of the last hundred years, you know, in a second. We are living in a in an embarrassment of riches. So take advantage of that stuff. Find teachers who are solid biblical teachers and supplement um, your growth through those things. That is not a replacement for church. Okay, it's not a replacement. You can't just be like, well, cool, Ash. If I'm gonna listen to John Piper every week, then why am I coming here? Um, it, it's not the same thing, right? You need to be a part of a community of faith and hear the, the preaching of the word and be amongst the people. That's necessary, but you can certainly supplement your faith with those things. So listen. Um, to stuff. Um, spend your commute listening to something, right? Use exercise time. If you work out or jog or something, use those times to listen to stuff instead of just blaring like, you know, metal music to keep you running faster or something like that. Um, long distance travel. You know what I do now? When I go on a long trip, um, I get a book before I go and, and I knock a book out on the eight hour drive there and the eight hour drive back. Um, I read a book when I went to the Dominican Republic. I was in an airport and on a plane for about 11 hours one day, right? 
there and back, I knocked out a whole 400-page book just in listening to a book on CD or a book on a podcast or, or whatever, an audible book. And so take advantage of those things. Um, you guys know I love Al Mohler's The Briefing, which is a little kind of daily news um, uh, analysis in a Christian worldview. But what I love even more is his, his podcast thing called Thinking in Public. And what he does there is he takes a book. And then he calls up the author, and they have a discussion about the book. And so it's almost like you're doubling up. You're listening to this teaching, and yet at the same time, you're talking about a book that was written and engaging with the culture. We have to be those kind of people. Moreover, there are some things out there that we can watch. We don't always have to listen. We can watch stuff, too. There's not as much good content for watching, but there are a few good things out there, right? There's this, there's this YouTube channel called The Bible Project that's got some great little videos. Like It's got some very uh, clear and concise and informational things for us. And so take advantage of those things. Make time for them. The next time you sit down and you go, I think I'm going to veg out for two hours and watch garbage, maybe say, I'm only going to veg out for one hour watching garbage. The other time, I'm going to spend um, looking into and listening something that is, that is edifying and building me up. Okay, So, so let's, let's take all that having said that and kind of zoom in on two things and then we'll be done and, and we'll get out of here. Okay, So two exhortations and, and, I'll, and I'll zoom in on two characters that, that tie into what we're talking about. Today is St. Patrick's Day, yeah, right? It's, um, and, then, and I've already mentioned Augustine in this context. And so first off is just a reiteration of that point. Tole lege, right? Take up and read. Take time to do those things. Reading is critical. We are people of the book. You hear that phrase all throughout history. We are people of the book. We have to be readers. If you don't like reading, I'm telling you, man, you've got to figure it out and start. Okay? You've got to work at it. Um, and, and because it's too important not to. Patrick. St. Patrick. One of the neat things about Patrick, and this is something that you may not know, there's a book by a guy named Thomas Cahill called How the Irish Saved Civilization, which is a a little bit of a strong title, right? Um, But what it's about is basically this. As the Roman Empire fell, as the barbarian hordes invaded from, from the north and crushed Western civilization, right, invaded all through Europe, all the way into North Africa, and basically annihilated um 1,500 years of culture and learning and progress and stuff like that. Guess what happened? There were these little Christian monks who lived in Ireland because of Patrick and his evangelistic efforts. And living up in this little island way out in the middle of nowhere, they didn't get the same kind of invasions that everybody else did. And so they were able to not suffer the repercussions of, of those invasions. But what was important about that is that the Irish were really, they they recognized the importance of reading, of literature, of writing, of writing things down and keeping them for posterity. And so guess what they had done? They had copied all the great works of the ancient world. They had copied um, the Latin scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures and things, the the writings of, of different theologians throughout history. And as in many cases, those things were destroyed in the rest of the world. They were burned by barbarians who didn't care about them and didn't know what they were. In Ireland, they sat tucked away safely in monasteries for centuries so that later on they could be brought back to the modern world. Okay, If if it weren't for the Irish, there would be many things from the ancient world that we wouldn't have anymore, like 
I don't know anything specific, but things like Homer's, you know, Odyssey and the Iliad and these, these classic things, they would have been lost were it not for Irish monasteries that recognize that Christianity is a reading faith. Right. And we care about words. We care about books. And that's important. And because of that, it's again, the, the title's a little hyperbole, but not completely, man. Western civilization was saved because of that. Um, the, the things that had been had been um, built up to that port uh, that point. We have to be people who care about reading. But more than that, and this is this is the other piece of, of Patrick and his mission is we can't just be people who have that knowledge. We have to be people who take that knowledge to the world. So here's the other amazing thing about those little monasteries in Ireland. They didn't just sit on their books, okay? They didn't just look to the scriptures and look to their theology and look to it and go, boy, it's nice that we've got all these pretty nice books and that we know all this cool stuff and we're on our nice little tucked away island here and the whole rest of the world is going to hell, literally, but but we're just going to hang out here. You know what happened? The Irish monks sailed from Ireland and went to Scotland and founded new Christian communities in Scotland. And then the Irish and Scots sailed to the coast of, down further to the coast of England and formed new Christian communities among the barbarian tribes who invaded those places. And those Christian communities sailed to the continent and went into France and went into the Anglo-Saxon lands in, in Germany. And they literally re-evangelized the world. Right? They literally re-evangelized a lost continent. They could do that because they had the foundation of those books. Right? They had the foundation of those scriptures and that faith that was remembered because it had been written down. And because they were engaging with it and learning from it and reading it. And in reading those things, it gave them a passion to take that knowledge to a lost and dying world. And again, I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but there are various voices in our culture who are saying we are on the cusp of, a, of another event like that. We are on a cusp of, of the entire, the entirety of the, of, of all our accumulated knowledge over the last 2000 years is about to be thrown in the garbage because of political forces, because of social forces, people who are saying everything that happened before now is unimportant. We're progressive. We're moving forward. We've got these new ideas, and we're going to be doing these new things. And what's going to happen, or what could happen, just like it did in, in the European world, all of a sudden you look up one day, and in a generation, nobody remembers these things, right? There are many places in the United States where you go, and you ask somebody, who's Jesus? And they go, the Hispanic guy who lives down the street from me? Like, I don't know anybody. What, who's Jesus? What are you talking about? And you're like, how is that possible in America? How is that possible with the Internet? How is that possible with bookstores in every town? And the answer is because it only takes a generation or so to completely forget everything that's ever been known. And so it is, it is incumbent upon us. We have to be people who hold on to that truth and hold on to that knowledge and carry it over to the next generation. But more than that, not just hold it for the next generation, but take it to the next generation. Reading and knowledge of the scriptures encouraged the Irish missionaries to take the gospel to the lost. And that's what we have to do, too. And I'll read this final quote from a guy named uh, David Nehus. And he says this. To make a real difference in people's lives, biblical literacy programs will have to do more than simply encourage believers to memorize a selected set of verses. They will have to teach people to speak the language of faith. 
And while this language is, of course, grounded in grammar and vocabulary and stories of the Bible, living languages are embedded in actual human communities that are constituted by particular habits, values, practices, stories, exemplars. We don't memorize languages. We use them and live through them. Literacy enables us to read both the word and the world. Language mediates our reality, expands our horizons, it inspires our imagination, it empowers our actions. Literacy, therefore, isn't simply about possessing a static ability to read and write. It's a dynamic reality, a never-ending life practice that involves putting those skills to work in reshaping our identity and transforming the world. Biblical literacy programs need to do more than produce informed quoters. They need to produce transformed readers. Right? And that's what we're talking about, that growing in knowledge that sends people to the word and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. So I want to have a time of prayer. Um, and, and what I would ask you is this. Um, let's just go to God and say, God, will you make me into this kind of person? I want to be fed and fueled by your scriptures. I want to be somebody who seeks to add to my virtue knowledge. I want to be somebody who grows in sanctification in terms of my knowledge of the faith. Will you help me to do that, Lord? Will you put these things in place in my life so that I would live these things out and be true to them? All right, let's go to the Lord and, and do that now.